I think both the VA and the Department of Defense had to make a decision to go to a more stable platform for whatever their electronic health record is going to be. My understanding from viewing what the, the VA executive leadership team went through, it, it actually mirrors what we went through, albeit earlier, in the Department of Defense. I believe if that's the case in particular, then that synergy of having the Department of Defense and the Veterans Health Administration all on the same product together, that synergy just magnifies the, the goodness of that decision for both of us to go down this headway. I think the VHA is going through essentially what the DOD went through three or four years ago, and they're behaving in exactly the same thoughtful way that the Department of Defense was going through it, and, and ultimately I think we're still on a good path. Welcome to the Policy Vets Podcast, engaging with leaders, scholars, and strong voices to fill a void in support of policy development for America's veterans. With your hosts, former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shilkin, and former Executive Director of the American Legion, Lou Chelley. Today's guest, Lieutenant General Ron Place, Director of the Defense Health Agency. Hey, Lou, today we're going to have a chance to talk to Lieutenant General Place. And I think people are really going to be interested to hear from this guy. He's one of those guys that is really important in running healthcare in this country, but not many people know him. No, Mr. Secretary, I love General Place. He is, he's a patriot. Um, he served in Afghanistan. He's a combat surgeon. He took over the Defense Health Agency in 2019 and had some real strong visions about where he was going to take the agency. He's overseeing a number of different projects right now. And then, of course, that was all thrown into chaos by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, Lou, you know, I've had the chance to work with a lot of people who have run the Defense Health Agency. And I can tell you that relationship between DHA and VA is a really important one because they can do a lot by working together, yet they've largely been run in completely separate organizations with a big silo between them. And when you get to hear this guy, you're going to hear he really does have a vision for working together and making healthcare better for those who are serving in uniform and for veterans. Well, I can tell you as a patient of DHA, I feel very comfortable that he's at the helm. So let's get started. General Place, thank you so much for joining us today. Gentlemen, uh, you're welcome, but truly the, the honor is mine. I appreciate being able to, to have a nice conversation with you today. We very much appreciate that. So for those of our listeners that aren't aware, can you tell us a little bit about the Defense Health Agency? Sure. The Defense Health Agency is uh, uh, charged with the mission of uh, providing enterprise healthcare support to the Department of Defense. In general, that means uh, healthcare delivery inside of fixed facilities, largely in the United States, but in in some of our, our more robust facilities uh, overseas in Europe, uh, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, et cetera. Secondarily, we manage all aspects of the TRICARE contracts, which are those aspects where the Department of Defense is responsible for healthcare delivery, but that healthcare delivery may be happening in uh, one of our civilian partners uh, or with another federal partner, that largest federal partner being the Veterans Administration, and significant collaboration between the DOD and the VA when it comes to healthcare delivery. And then third, it means managing uh, multiple systems that, uh, that support not just healthcare delivery in those fixed facilities, but also supports the services. So the Department of the Army, the Department of the Navy, Department of the Air Force, et cetera, on things like contracting or 
the, the pharmacy formulary, uh, things of that nature that we can do for the entire Department of Defense uh, more effectively or certainly more efficiently than individual services can do it by themselves. All told, uh, it's about a $50 billion program that fits within the, the general Department of Defense budget specifically for healthcare delivery. I know that's a big agency and it's an important mission and you deal with a lot of issues. But I think when you took over General Place, you were right in the midst of a pandemic, which I know is really none of us prepared or trained for that. And so tell us a little bit about how the Defense Health Agency has been working to make sure that our service members are vaccinated. And how's that going so far? Sure. The vaccination, of course, is the, the preventive part of it. And that's the part that we're focusing on now. But but you're talking about what has the department done for the entirety of uh, our COVID response. It's multifactorial. Certainly, it involved the initial aspects of the whole of government response where the, the department uh, utilized our hospital ships, our two hospital ships, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. The Navy elements uh, largely took care of that responsibility. The Army and the Air Force, on the other hand, sent uh, units first into other structures that the Army Corps of Engineers facilitated in large cities. And when that didn't look like it was probably the right way to go, then they facilitated staffing into individual hospitals that were at particular need. It then uh, migrated through... Uh, this belief uh, early last summer that perhaps COVID convalescent plasma may be one of the treatment armamentariums. So then along with our partners in the civilian world, American Red Cross uh, and Blood Centers of America, um, to, to get out to the community for those who had been infected and recovered. And, well, let's get some of that just in case that's a good methodology. It certainly looks over time that that methodology hasn't been as effective as we would have liked. But now we have lots of that uh, specific plasma for research purposes to see, what, well, what might it be useful for in the future on other pandemics, et cetera. We then migrated into uh, the research and development. So the Department of Defense helped fund many of the, the vaccine trials along the way, specifically here in the United States, but as part of international collaborations as well. Uh, and then we're functioning into then how do you deliver it? And there's really three arms to how we're delivering vaccine across the United States. The first, of course, is which on our installations, inside our hospitals, our clinics, et cetera. But in addition to that, there's uh, large elements of National Guard that are that are uh, vaccinating in their home states. And then the entire Department of Defense is supporting the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the FEMA support at large mega sites uh, across the United States. If you count the, the National Guard services, the FEMA sites combined, that's about 6 million doses to Americans, non-DOD beneficiaries, but 6 million doses to, to Americans. And if you add that into the almost uh, two and a quarter million that we've delivered on our installations to our beneficiaries, all told, the department's responsible for vaccinating about 8 million doses so far in America. So that's the depth and breadth, at least at the high level of what we've been able to do over the last several months. I think that's such an important point. I don't think that many Americans recognize how much DOD has been involved at all those different levels. And certainly, I remember having run New York City hospitals that very, very scary time where it did look like we we're going to be overwhelmed. And it was our, uh, you know, health professionals from the Department of Defense that showed up in not only with the ships, but in the tents. And I think it gave us all a great deal of confidence to see uh, how quickly and prepared you were to step in, because that's part of your mission, to be mission ready. And, and uh, thank you for reminding us about that. 
least I think I saw on your Twitter account, something like 32% of servicemen and women have been vaccinated. Maybe the numbers changed since then. But the military has a vaccination program that it vaccinates for all sorts of preventive uh, diseases when you know people are sent overseas and into combat situations. Do you ever see a time where the COVID vac- vaccine may be mandated? The, the department uh, looks at readiness very specifically, and we look at mission readiness across the entire world. How can we best prepare our service members to be effective and, and healthy wherever the department asks them to, to go? And, and most of the vaccines that we use in the Department of Defense are fully licensed. So when fully licensed, uh, then the department feels pretty comfortable mandating the, the requirement for our service members to, to get that vaccine, whether, you know, personally we may want that vaccine or not, but it's a requirement to be in the military to go to this particular part of the world. <clears throat> we also recognize that, that over time that when those vaccines are under emergency use, that means that there's some information about them that isn't known, particularly over the long term. And, and we're cognizant of the requirement. Now, speaking on behalf of the department here, we're cognizant of the requirement that that places on the department to, to be able to project what's known and, and be able to understand the, the ramifications of what's potentially not known. So I, I would be surprised, quite frankly, if uh, – if everything else stays the same, that the department would change its position and do anything other than have this be a voluntary vaccine. That said, yeah. based on what I've seen, and, and sir, I'll defer to you. Again, I'm a general surgeon, so in immunization health is not really within my bailiwick of what, I, what I've been trained to deal with. Uh, but with my knowledge of, of pathophysiology and my, my knowledge of immunizations, this is what I'll tell you. That with the hundred and more than 150 million doses that have already been administered across America, the safety profile over months looks very encouraging, and the efficacy profile again looks very encouraging. In particular, when you when you compare it against other vaccinations and specifically to other mass vaccinations like influenza, the, these vaccines and I'm lumping them all together. They all have you know a little bit of different methodology and etc. But lumping them all together. From an efficacy perspective, they do much better than our seasonal influenza vaccines. From a, a safety perspective, at least in the immediate safety concerns, they, they look very similar to what we see in a normal influenza-type vaccine. So if that continues, I would not be surprised that the FDA fully licenses it. If the FDA fully licenses it, then I'm, I'm guessing that the department would take another look at it and decide again, okay, now it's fully licensed. Does that change our view on it? And I'm not going to get ahead of the secretary and, and say what he would decide, yeah. but my guess is we would take another look at it if it's fully licensed. No, I, I think it's a very thoughtful approach, and, and I appreciate your transparency and sharing your decision, you know, the way that you think about these issues. I think that's a very reasonable approach that you're taking. So thank you for that. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about another critical issue for the agency, and that's really been your continued rollout of your electronic health record modernization program. And as you know, uh, the VA has also taken on a modernization program, but the Department of Defense is well ahead of where VA is. Um, Do you think that VA's decision to move towards the same instance that the Department of Defense is on for an electronic record was a good decision? Yeah, overall, I do think it was a good decision. And that's not just because uh, certain parties of this conversation may have been principals in making that decision. 
No, I, I just, again, I'm, I'm no computer expert, but I do understand the ramifications of the platforms that both the, the legacy Department of Defense instance was on as well as the, DA, uh, the VA instance. And quite frankly, it's an unstable platform. So even though it's performing relatively well today, the likelihood of it continuing to perform well, even in the medium-term future, let alone the long-term, is, is really unlikely. So I, I think both the VA and the Department of Defense had to make a decision to go to a more stable platform for whatever their electronic health record is going to be. And then it becomes, at what point do you think that you have the experience and the expertise to be able to develop a better product than what exists in the civilian sector? And if so, how well does it deliver to what you want it to do? And if we could say yes to both of those things, that we could do it better, and it better serves what we require for an electronic health record in the military health system, then we should have done it that way. Well, as we examined ourselves, we didn't, and it wasn't even close. And my understanding from viewing what the, the VA executive leadership team went through, it, it actually mirrors what we went through, albeit ease, uh, earlier, in the Department of Defense. And then ultimately, uh, I believe that uh, if that's the case in particular, then that synergy of having the Department of Defense and the Veterans Health Administration all on the same product together, that synergy just magnifies the, the goodness of that decision for both of us to go down this headway. And then I'll, I'll just add this on. I don't, I don't think that anyone should be looking at where the VA is now and compare that against where the DOD is now. We, we had some pretty significant struggles when we started, and that was after significant efforts that went into how can we do this well, how can we do this right, to include lots of feedback at the user level, because that's where it matters the most, at the user level, the physicians, the nurses, the therapists, the logisticians, whoever it is. And despite all that significant work, we still had some challenges. And what did we do? We, we, had, a, we had a pause. Okay, it didn't go nearly as well as we thought it was going to. Well, let's, let's pause and let's figure it out. I think the VHA is going through essentially what the DOD went through three or four years ago, and they're behaving in exactly the same thoughtful way that the Department of Defense was going through it. And, and ultimately, I think we're still on a good path. And I, I'm committed to that. That is really so great to hear. And I mean, first of all, I want to I want to thank you for your role and DOD's role in rolling out the vaccines. Got my second one last week. I am uh, seven days away from being Teflon. I'm very happy about that. And when you and I first met, um, you took over at a pivotal time, as the secretary had said, and there were several several things that you had uh, you had a vision for for DHA. EHR was just one of them. But what I'd really like to know is, looking back now over these past three or four years, what is it that you can attribute the success that you're having now to a far more streamlined rollout? What would you say has been the biggest factor to kind of getting this now on an even keel? Are you talking specifically about the electronic health record or? Sure. Yeah, about the rollout. Well, you know, one of the one of the advantages and and Secretary Shulkin, you'll probably know these quotes better than me, but uh, from the, the Mayo brothers, right? The only the only true victor in war is medicine. Because there's lots of lots of innovation that happens, and quite frankly, uh, uh, industry puts effort toward innovation, in particular in times of war. But the thing that we care most about is life, and so a lot of that that investment of industry and investment of the department during time of war is into the actual person, to the people involved, and so medicine tends to win. I'll, I'll go specifically to the electronic health record. We had to figure out how we could how we could continue to do the pre preparation at the local levels when we couldn't travel. We had to figure out how you can utilize best 
you know, virtual systems to do training. Uh, we, we've already recognized that computer-based training probably not nearly as effective as we'd want it to be. And so in general, we've reverted back to then over-the-shoulder training. So how can you do that in the virtual environment? And take those, no kidding, day-by-day lessons learned because they must happen because we're not traveling anytime soon. So it, it, it's a forcing function to make us do that just a little bit better. So all of those those unique steps along the way all were improved so that we didn't get off schedule in, in our rollout of the electronic health record, we're now, I think by the end of this month, we'll have 30% of, of all of our instances across the, the Department of Defense on the MHS Genesis. So we're well along our way, in large part because teams figured out ways to solve problems. Well, heck, that's what we do in, in healthcare anyway, individually and as teams. That's why we have team-based meetings, right, Dr. Shulkin? Right? Yeah. Not, not the expectation that one physician or one nurse or, or, or one therapist is going to figure it out, but how can we bring multiple different points of view to a problem set? In that particular case, it's a sick person, and how can we optimize their ultimate care? Well, the same is, should be true for executives. How can we look at the entire system? Where do we bring all the different parts to bear against it so that no matter what the requirements are or the constraints that we're, we're, we're working under to include you can't travel, you can't see people in person, and all these other things that you can't do, but you still have a requirement to be successful. So we used leadership and problem-solving skills and use technology as we know it today as supporting functions to still solve problems and, and proactively move this requirement forward. That's terrific. You know, one of the things, General Place, that you talked about early on was the size and scope of the Defense Health Agency and your responsibilities. And between the uniform members, between the retirees and their families, it's about 9.6 million people. That's about the same size as the VA healthcare system in terms of the number of veterans that it cares for. Do you see opportunities for these two agencies to work closer together in the future? That is all the time that we have today. Join us next week when Lieutenant General Place talks about how warfighter medicine wins wars sometimes even before a single shot is fired you are not going to want to miss the rest of this conversation thanks for listening to the policy vets podcast for more information about projects and other podcasts go to policyvets.org